I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Hey guys, that's season six, huh? Jesse and Chris, who knew season six would ever happen? Uh, yeah. no, nobody. Well, nobody. Chris didn't know. Certainly Chris didn't even. Me. He didn't even want season one to happen. I thought, uh, I thought we were going to come to. We were going to. This is going to go to a grinding halt during a sacrosanctum concilium. But uh, if we survive that, yeah. But here we are, and who knew how far this would reach, right? We have all these different groups. Chris, you from Adoramus, and here in Benedictine College, we now have two organizations helping along. So there's the Center for Beauty and Culture, you know, that I'm in charge of. But also there's something here now called the Ex Corde Center for Catholic Media, and they're going to provide the, um, what do you call it, Jesse, the behind-the-scenes editing, posting, Product- production, production, that's the word. And so that'll give you time to... Do your good work at the Liturgical Institute. Run your so, L.I. Uh, empire. Yeah, exactly. So it's nice to see. We've, we're now reaching from Minnesota. No, where are you, Chris? What state? Wisconsin? Minnesota. <laughs> Tennis. Wisconsin, Illinois, to Kansas. I won't, accu- I won't accuse you of being in Nebraska because that'd be, a, that'd be an upgrade. For yeah, well, we, Kansas. we New Yorkers don't understand all those square states out These blocky out the states. Even though I live here now. <laughs> You're just getting further and further west. Pretty pretty soon you'll be in California, Dennis. No, I'm trying to get to the absolute geographic center of the country, which is somewhere in Kansas and not too far yeah. from here, actually. Road trip. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Speaking of Dennis, road trips, right? Yeah, we're going to we're, we're road trip to, to Nebraska. Or not Nebraska. Now oh, you guys got me mixed up. Kansas. We're gonna road trip, yeah, we're going to road trip to Atchison, and we're going to do a live Liturgy Guys podcast on November 9th at Benedictine College. It's free if you're around in the area, you can join us, but we're very excited about that. I'm going to be giving out, I'm going to give a, a talk at some point, maybe before or after that day. And Chris, you're going to be giving a, a whole nother presentation as well. It's going to be a, a mm-hmm. lot of great liturgi- liturgical institute and Adoramus and Benedictine sweet, sweet presentations. And the topic for our live Liturgy Guys podcast will be, are you a victim, you a victim at, at mass? mass. It's Are you a great. victim at Mass? <laughs> and the answer better be yes, or you're not getting what you're supposed to get out of Mass. But we'll we'll tease that out. Yeah, we have, a, and then we have a couple of other things coming up. Dennis, you and I are going to be in uh, Yakima, Washington, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to be there December 17th and 18th for some presentations there. And then Chris uh, Adoramus is is uh, co-sponsor of the Litur- Liturgy Week conference that we're revitalizing. So that was a as our listeners know about the great liturgy weeks that started in the liturgical movement. And, and the first one in America was in Chicago in 1940. So we're trying to bring that back. We're trying to have more good liturgy conferences in America. So the theme for this year for that conference is going to be uh, sacramental foundations for directors of RCIA. So that's going to be really great. Yeah, no, it will be. That's one of the one of the handful of books that are being uh, retranslated by uh, uh, by the U.S. bishops, and so that'll be coming out uh, in in the near future. So it's a very timely conference as well. Yeah, I remember um, we we heard that it was going to be OCIA is going to be the new title for that, right? That's and right. So OCIA, we'll, which was good. Uh, our, I, I hopefully, we'll before have... I, I could never even spell RCIA. It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's that difficult. <laughs> So, so we're going to have some some presentations on uh, on our 
well, currently on the RCIA process. And what I'm looking forward to is the mystagogical formation beyond initiation. We're going to have a whole uh, course just on that. So we're very excited about that. And uh, Chris, what do you what, got going? Well, yeah. Well, besides that, we've got, um, you know, we'll get to this, our topic here in a little bit, but uh, uh, right in uh, Adoramus's wheelhouse is uh, where we're, I think we're really well positioned, as you are, Jesse, uh, and you too, Dennis, to, to respond to this uh, Bodo Proprio Pope Francis we'll talk about, uh, which, you know, will continue. I, I didn't know that. I think maybe we should stop recording right now. We could continue to. Um, to form and educate and inspire in the uh, authentic, traditional, contemporary celebration of the sacred liturgy uh, that divinizes us unto the glory of God. And that's a pretty awesome thing. So that's kind of what we do on a day to day sort of, uh, you know, uh, at work. So it, it's a great job to have at Adoramus. So anyway, and we and continue to publish, as, as I think, if you're a, re if you're a reader of Adoramus Bulletin, Jesse and Dennis. Uh, if you look at our, the pictures, a lot of our contributors. I read L everything but the quizzes. Our LI uh, alums, so um, I think more of those are uh, uh, about to be uh, uh, born too, right? You have a number of students, I think, this year at the LI. And yeah, we, we have uh, we have a bit of a waiting list for our online master's degree, which is really great. So we we have some things going on there too, and. We have our November Profound Preaching Conference coming up for priests and deacons, and a mutual friend of ours will be will be doing that, Father Daniel Cardo. So uh, he's written for Adoramus. He's doing a lot of great things. And by the way, Chris, I don't know that we ever mentioned this, but you recently went through a website rebranding, and I have to say, it is spectacular what, what that website looks like. And the I think you're still filling out some of the archive stuff, but it's really easy to use. And if you if you're looking for a reference on anything, chances are you'll find it at Adoramus for any liturgical thing. So please go and check that out. And uh, Dennis, yes, you're still te you're still teaching this semester, right? You got still stuff going teaching, on? and uh, the mission of the Center for Beauty and Culture is expanding. And you know, we did that last podcast of season five, all about it. But the uh, events are ramping up. We're going to issue our first prize for the excellence and beauty and culture, and I think I can announce I, who it is if you're ready I to hear accept, it. I accept. I accept. Well, yes. you we both you. accept. You are worthy of it, Chris, but it is going to be Bishop Robert Barron of oh, wow. Zilli Bishop of Los Angeles for his great I've work. I've heard of him. Yeah. So he'll be uh, coming out to campus sometime in the spring. We're still working out all the details, but that is great news. Excellent. And we're starting the fellows to the Center for Beauty and Culture. So these are students who help the mission, learn things, take classes, do service projects, and beautify the campus and the world. And uh, it's pretty great stuff. Benedictine is hopping with intellectual vitality and the largest entering class in its history, which is kind of amazing. 20 years ago, they had 589 total students. This year, the entering class alone was over 600 students. So it's kind of an amazing thing to see. Tell me a little bit about every single new student so that we don't have to talk about the motu proprio. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> we have to talk about the motu proprio. Yeah. No, we, we, get to, we get to talk about Well, it's important, proprio. and I think it's important in our, our role here as liturgy guys. You know, somebody recently reminded me that Aristotle said virtue is found in the mean between excess and deficiency, and beauty is found in the mean between excess and deficiency, and I think liturgical things are found there too, and we're going to try to pull ourselves into this mean between uh, an excess of fear or worry about it and a deficient interest in it and try to see what it's uh, really about. Whether any of us like it or not, any listeners like it or not, we're going to do uh, do it justice. Well, I've always thought you were very mean, Dennis. Yes. So I <laughs> uh, that's a good intro, Dennis. I think that's the first thing to to remember about this is that, you know, we 
We study, uh, you know, church documents, instructions, books, and things like that. Not because we might happen to like them or not, but because you know we this this institution that we signed up for, this mystical body of Christ and its uh, uh, earthly uh, governance and structure, is one of these things that uh, I think our fundamental attitude to what the church gives is uh, obedience and uh, humility and docility and trying to receive it. Um, you know, as faithful sons and daughters of uh, the church. So I think that's the right way to to read any document, and uh, even, and, and especially this one. To remember God's in charge of it all, right? So if you don't like a particular document, you know, you have to you have to break your will against it and say, okay, well, this seems to be how the Holy Spirit's guiding the church, and how do we make the, the best of it? Of course, the Mojo Proprio, as you may recall, is an apostolic letter. Um, that Mojo Proprio is the... Um, the nature of it, that's by the authority of the pontiff himself, although the pontiff usually takes counsel with people, asks questions, and then makes a decision. So Summorum Pontificum, which gave greater latitude for the use of the extraordinary form, was also a motu proprio, right? So this is within the pope's authority uh, to do, and he has done it. So, Chris, what what's, he done? what is the uh, the caricature of this is the pope has clamped down on the extraordinary form. And I guess yeah. this, there's some truth in that, but caricatures are usually a distortion. So we'll try to see what it really says. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, maybe this is getting too far ahead of it. It seems like a lot of this is sort of restoring things to the place they were prior to Samorum Pontificum. Uh, what is that, 2007, maybe 2008? I think 2007. Mm-hmm. Um so it's uh, it's kind of reverting back to how things had been prior to uh, Sumorum Pontificum. Um, and so in that way, it's um, certainly it's a change from how things were a year ago, but it's not a great change from how they were 13 or 14 years ago. But yeah, I mean, what's the, I don't know, if, if, if in a word, Dennis, uh, what is the Pope trying to, what, what does he say he's trying to do in uh, this motu proprio? Well, he says right at the beginning to promote the concord and unity of the church, which is always one of the goals. You know, we talked about Prosper Garanger in season two or three and the great liturgical movement figure who wanted to foster the unity of the Roman rite, the unity of the Roman rite. Vatican II talked about the unity of the Roman rite. And as much as the ordinary and extraordinary forms seem to coexist, there is, by definition, a lack of unity there, right? Now, maybe because you think the extraordinary form is not uh, reformed enough, or maybe you think the ordinary form is not traditional enough, but there are kind of two streams going along here. And I think even Pope Benedict in Samorum Pontificum did not want that as the goal. He talked about mutual enrichment, and although he didn't say it, I imagine the idea was someday these two divided things would blend, and the great tradition would continue, and the necessary reforms of Vatican II would be properly implemented, and that unity would happen. Now, did he imagine it was 200 years it would take, or or seven, uh, or whatever, 14 years? <laughs> so what I see this doing, for better or for worse, is forcing or hurrying along the possibility of unity, and that's how I'm choosing, uh, choosing to read it. Yeah, in fact, on that point, so so he wrote the motu proprio, which, which is really rather short. I don't know, is it a thousand words or a little bit? And then sort of like Pope Benedict did with Sumorum Pontificum, he wrote another letter to the bishop sort of explaining his reasons for the official motu proprio. But in this uh, accompanying letter near the end, yeah, he talks about uh, bishops um, are to provide for the good of those who are rooted in the previous form of celebration and need to return in due time to the Roman rite promulgated by Saints Paul VI and John Paul II. Mm-hmm. Now, so, Benedict never said that, right? No. So no. that is a difference of emphasis, I would say. 
Yeah. I think, though, although for the it's life a, of me, It's a I pretty big difference, though, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I uh, But say, I, I, I thought I heard Father uh, Cardinal Seurat, who I understand is not Pope, but uh, I mean, he's a, he's a trusted voice in things liturgical, either from his position or whatever. Uh, I remember him saying something like that, although, like I say, I can't find it now. But yeah, that seems to be, you know, coming to the heart of the church, not just ecclesially, but even liturgically now. And I, as you say, Dennis, this is uh, meant to hurry that along. Yeah, and it may not come across that way. You know, when I, when I first came out, and I'll put my my tratty creds, you know, street cred on the line here, right? So I was a teenager in high school, and I thought I first discovered the extraordinary form. Okay, so this is 30-plus years ago, right, in the 80s, when this was really not a new thing. So, And I've been going on and off over the years. I go to extraordinary form a lot uh, now, currently. hasn't really changed our celebration around here. On the other hand, I also realized there's some limitations to the unreformed, especially low mass, and that the valid insights of the liturgical movement in Vatican II have to be dealt with. And we just can't have the extraordinary form going on its river and the ordinary form going on its river forever, or else we'll have the kind of two divided churches in, in a way. And so when I first read this, I was a little bit anxious because I didn't really know what it said. But then the moment hit me, it's like, this is our opportunity. How can we get the ordinary form to be more like the extraordinary form where it needs it and get the extraordinary form more like the ordinary form where it needs it. And except for people on the far extremes, something that can be, you know, beautiful, reverent, traditional Roman, and uh, hopefully available and suitable for anybody who wants to go to mass and wants it to be done as the church envisions it. And when, and when Benedict talked about that mutual enrichment, he gave some examples, but every example was how, the ordinary, the Novus Ordo would enrich the uh, the extraordinary form. I mean, right? Well, I think it was mutual. He didn't elaborate actually that much on what the two forms could do for each other. Uh, again, Cardinal Seurat maybe did more of that. But um, yeah, I think um, certainly what, what the ordinary form could have offered to the ordinary form, uh, Benedict said is, you know, uh, offer a sense of mystery that uh, all too often had been uh, missing from uh, celebrations in the Mass according to the Missal of Paul VI. Um, what I remember, you know, Cardinal Seurat, you know, thinking is that, you know, what the ordinary form could offer to the extraordinary is a sense of um, less of an emphasis perhaps on individual uh, participation in the Mass and more of a that of the assembly or the the, the larger body. I mean, there, there, there's a lot that both could offer to the other. Uh, and I, you know, I think that my opinion is, is that, um, Sometimes when you when one thinks back to what mass might have been like in 1950, and fewer and fewer people can actually remember what that was was like. Is I mean, like you said, Dennis, it had its own limitations, not just in how it was celebrated, but really in the ritual itself. That um, that uh, figures uh, sound in the papacy and in the liturgical movement were trying to um, trying to change, you know, for the sake of the people's participation. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, both of these forms can, you know, could have and can, you know, uh, influence each other for a, for a more fulsome celebration. Well, you know what I see in front of me right now, Chris? I see a limb and Jesse, too. I see a limb and I'm going to go out on that limb, even though <laughs> we don't do that very often on the liturgy, guys. But I think we have to say it. I don't think you can say that the unreformed 62 missile is the future of the church, right? The Vatican Council 
did not see it that way. The great scholars of the 20th century did not see it that way. Maybe there's great riches that need to be mined from it so that we can celebrate what Vatican II wanted uh, more appropriately, more authentically, more traditionally, more beautifully, with greater depth, interior and exterior. But to just say the unreformed missile of 62 is the future, as a lot of people do, even though I go to it almost every week, I don't think we can make that claim. I think we have to say the Holy Spirit guided the church, guided the council, and if the implementation wasn't perfect, or used the great tradition as it's you know, paralleling right now, but that someday the ideal would be to have one missile that is the norm for everybody, and it's celebrated perfectly, and uh, our challenge is to, is to get there. I'm kind of guard. I'm kind of guarded against saying like, "Oh, we did it. We did it, everybody. This is it. This is the one. This is the one thing that. This is the perfect mass that will ever. It will. It will never be better than this. It will never get better. We did it. Congratulations. Okay, we're done. And so, Chris, you always talk about the the liturgy being kind of a a breathing, living thing. You know. Yeah. Well, I think you know. As a, this isn't exactly a counter to Dennis's point, but I think. Uh, uh, by the same token, you know, your, your sort of typical celebration of the post-conciliar mass, uh, I don't know that that's the, the future that's of the church either. either. <laughs> so, right. uh, yeah, so that's, th- that is a very valid point, and I'm glad you made that point. <laughs> and I am too. I watched the Simpsons ep- Halloween episode uh, the other day, and it's the Goldilocks and Three Bears, and they go into the, the porridge, and there's a bowl that's too hot, and there's one that's too cold, and you expect him to say, this one's just right, but Bart instead pours the cold into the hot and leaves the just right one alone. So he makes his own just right. So we're going to have to do that, I think, which is to say, how do we properly interpret the council documents based on our now increased knowledge of what the extraordinary form was, but not just to say that the, the accidents of history that led to a deformed liturgical book in some ways, right, and deformed, deformed liturgical, pract- liturgical practice has to be brought to its pristine quality. That's what Vatican II asked for. So this is how I read the document, whether uh, people individually think it's prudent or wise or not. I think this is the way for, at least as I see it, to go to go forward with it. Yeah, and, you know, I think um, th- that's where what the Ally is doing, Adoramus is doing, and to a degree the Center for Beauty and Culture is doing is um, – is you know well how can how can you respond to this and move forward? Um, what uh, I think most of our positions you know what even though you, you attend the extraordinary forum you know often is you know how can how can we respond to this motu proprio and make the current books reformed according to the to the council in line with tradition for the men and women of today? How can we implement, understand, and celebrate them in such a way that we can respond to this in this situation and, you know, really help to affect this unity in the heart of the church that both Benedict wanted and Pope Francis wanted. And that, I think, is um, we're going to talk a lot about that this season. You know, how should and can the mass be celebrated with more of these traditional features um, to to welcome, you know, everybody in who... Um, who is desiring a mass uh, according to the mind of the church. Right. And it's probably worth, you know, going through what some of the things this motu proprio actually yeah. says, yeah, right? So one of the first things it says is that um, it belongs to the diocesan bishop to regulate the use of this. So Pope Benedict had given kind of a blanket permission to any priest to celebrate the extraordinary form privately or even publicly. Um, and so now it goes back exclusively to the local uh, bishop. It makes a claim yeah. that yeah. I don't quite well, understand. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask you about that. So... 
I mean, we're, we're not in the job of, <laughs> of, uh, of grading uh, papal documents and things like that. But what do you make of that as a principle, that the local Dawson bishop is uh, the one best place to, to offer oversight to liturgy in his, in his diocese. Well, it seems pretty consistent with the way the church governs a lot of things, right? The bishop's the chief liturgist. On the other hand, you know, could a local bishop say, well, you're not allowed to use the ordinary form of the Mass, right? So Pope Benedict is saying the extraordinary form is the Mass, and nobody can tell a priest they can't say the Mass, right? Now, Benedict is, I mean, Francis is taking that in a little bit, saying no. We want uh, the bishop to regulate as they see fit. You could imagine the situation where a bunch of rogue priests would tell the bishop, well, you can't tell me what to do because I'm authorized mm -hmm. by this multi proprio. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right there, Dennis. This seems to be the nature of, uh, of the church that we're in, that it falls to the local bishop to, uh, to offer oversight. This seems like a sound principle. It's one that's come out of the council that, uh, you know, even, uh, I don't know if I pointed this out before, you know, even Pope Benedict, you know, on his coat of arms, do we talk about his papal coat of arms? What's different about it from, uh, from previous ones? It doesn't have the tiara? Yeah, the tiara is given way to a mitre. I think, and maybe I'm reading too much into that, but you know, the, the place of the bishop is, um, uh, I think, important here. Now, uh, like you said, it's, it's, but it's kind of this balance between the uh, diversity and unity from Rome and local bishops, and, and in fact, even in this letter, you got it's the it's it's within the competence of the local bishop to oversee this dot dot dot, but he has to do it in this way, <laughs> so it's it's you know still searching for that, but I think that. You know that the local bishop has oversight is seems a pretty sound ecclesial principle, right? Now, if you read through the things here, when the, the Article One says the books of Paul the Sixth and John Paul the Second, in other words, the ordinary form, is the unique expression of the lex orandi of the Roman Rite. So that sounds a bit like there is no such thing as two expressions of the Roman Rite anymore, right? Because unique means one. But then the second paragraph says, well, but you oh, can, yeah, go ahead. Hang on. Well, what, oh, well, maybe I'm interrupting you. So is there an article one? I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it sounds like legit? he's saying there is no extraordinary form anymore, right? Because there's only one. This is the unique expression. This is one of the mysteries, right? If they had made it clear. But then paragraph two says, well, the local bishops authorize the extraordinary form. So if there's only one, then it sounds to me like there is no extraordinary form. So this would be kind of a, a dubium that I would send if I were in that authority to say, well, is there only one or is there actually two? <laughs> because it seems like there's two, and then you say there's only one. Do you have you have an answer for that? No, no, I, but, no this is, but I know you weren't asking me. <laughs> no, but I do hear um, and read things, you know, that, uh, and I would say this too, uh, if you're listening, actually go and read the motu proprio and read the letter. It's easy just to read the commentary. And Lord knows I've read more commentary in this, and although I've been through the letter a few times now, but I'll hear people say, well, well, what about like uh, other Eastern rites, other Catholic rites, like the Coptic rite or the Maronite rite, or uh, you know the Ambrosian rite or the Gallican rite or things like that? And I don't think that's the right comparison. I think that would, be, you know, if there's an extraordinary form of say the Anglican use rite or an extraordinary form of the Ambrosian rite. I mean, that's really what this is. So it's not an apples to apples type of comparison. So I do think, Dennis, that that. There's only, I think what's what's unique, although I'm not the liturgical historian that I wish I were, I think that there would be two expressions of one right is what's unique in the history of the church. Although, you know, Lord knows, Pope Benedict knows more about the liturgy than I do. But um, yeah, it does sound like there's a unique expression and that's yeah. the... And unique means form. one, right? But now then he governs what the use of two. So I don't know how you... Uh, 
reconcile that. This is the kind of thing that would have to go to the courts if it were a law pay, passed in the U.S. You know, to sort of settle what that actually means. Um, but that's a lot. That's a lot for us to wrestle with, though. I mean, that that it's not clear. Well, and you know, from so I work as a Dawson liturgy director, and I, you know, I work to a degree with my own bishop and uh, other bishops. I guess is. Um, I think it's they're in a difficult spot to to legislate because there are a lot of questions about the motu proprio, and if they don't have the full answers, how can they uh, promulgate legislation in response to this? So this might be one of them. Here's another one. You know, so Article what Article three says that the local bishop is to do a number of things: is to determine that the groups who celebrate the usus antiquior. Because he doesn't use this, the expression ordinary, extraordinary format anywhere in this motu proprio. Uh, you think he's trying letter. to get rid of that terminology? Well, it's that's one of the, the, the questions is that, well, what do we, what do we call these mass? You, you know, and you've heard people say, well, it's, it's not right to call it the Latin mass necessarily because the, you know, the mass reform. Because you're going to have Latin in the Novus Ordo, too. Absolutely. So, but one of the things the bishop is supposed to do is uh, assure that the groups who celebrate uh, the, let's call it the extraordinary form for ease's sake, do not deny the validity and legitimacy of the council and its reforms. Um, That's pretty good. Good idea. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And just as an aside, <laughs> you would hope that any parish in a bishop's diocese, no matter what li liturgy they were celebrating, would not deny the legitimacy of the council. Right? You don't. This is not a thing proper to Catholics who celebrate the extraordinary form. I mean, you can celebrate the ordinary form and dispute and reject the legitimacy of a whole variety of things in the church, right? Say so, um, <laughs> Paul the Sixth and no <laughs> birth control. Say yeah. okay. Yeah. So um, number two is uh, the bishop is to designate one or more locations. And this is one of the confused where the, this mass yes. is celebrated, but not in parochial churches, not in parish churches. So that would have to be what, Dennis, like in a chapel or a closed church? Shrines of Columbus Shrine. Hall, you know, school yeah. auditorium. So Seminaries? It does seem a bit <laughs> like, oh, let's let's starve them out a little bit. I mean, I, I can see why people would read it that way, right? Yeah, and I, you know, some of the... What I've heard about this one is that, you know, if, it, well, Dennis, you spent a lot of time in, uh, where were you, Ravenna or uh, Florence or something? Uh, Florence, yeah. Yeah. So they, they would speak about Italian cities or towns having, you know, a chapel on every corner or yeah. every block and or something. Out like in that. the country, right along the roads, so all everywhere. Yeah. But that's not the case in the United States. Most of these celebrations of the extraordinary form are happening in parish churches. Um, Somebody pointed out to me, though, that back under John Paul II's papacy, and I think in the letter Ecclesia Dei Adflicta, which was kind of had the, the, the previous legislation, this, this is exactly what it said in that letter as well. Um, so again, th this might seem, you know, a real, you know, out of the blue change. I think it's more of a restoration of what was happening before. But again, I think there's a lot of bishops in, our, in the United States anyway, who might be saying, well, Really? Can, am, am I not supposed to have this in the parish church where it's supposed to be happening? And you wonder how it promotes unity if you put out a kind of sloppy document that's confusing. And then you also say it takes effect immediately, right? So normally mm -hmm. documents come out and they have a period of time 
where you can ask questions before it's implemented. This is like today. It starts today. And it's like, well, we don't know what to do. So some bishops have completely dispensed their diocese from it at all, which does not promote unity, in my opinion. Yeah, that was going to be my comment is I've, I've seen bishops re respond to this totally different from each other. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's not been a united front in the response for bishops. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, they have different experiences in their diocese. They have different personal opinions about this. Uh, there's there's points that are confusing about uh, uh, about the motu proprio. But anyway, uh, let, let's just go through this list again. What a diocesan bishop is supposed to do is to designate uh, uh, locations and days where this would be celebrated, uh, uh, appoint a priest to uh, oversee these groups. I don't know, like in our diocese, there's a lot of priests who do this. I don't, is this just supposed to be one priest? I don't know. Um, to, uh, let's see, to number six there, Dennis, not to authorize new groups to celebrate this. Uh, and when it is celebrated, the reading should be in the vernacular. So not in Latin silently and then again in the vernacular. That's mm -hmm. in uh, Article uh, 3 uh, of our mm -hmm. well, paragraph 3 of Article 3. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of points in here that um, I don't know. Uh, I at least don't know precisely uh, what it is that uh, how you're supposed to respond. Are you to trying that. to tell me that there's a liturgical document that is not so <laughs> explicitly clear about something? <laughs> yeah, so in that regard, it's it's in the long tradition of liturgical documents. This one seems to have built in inconsistencies rather than a translation problem. Now, of course, Article 6, uh, I mean, Article 4, says any seminarians who want to uh, learn this have to ask their bishop, and the bishop has to get permission from Rome. So talk about oh, no, 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 yeah. no, it says has to consult. Ah. What, is, what does that mean? Consult the apostolics. Does that mean I'm informing you or asking you? Don't oh. know. Don't know what that means, mm -hmm. right? Do, do you need, is it a matter of getting permission or not? Well, it doesn't really say, does it? No, it doesn't. So. Right. But that policy is kind of already in place for a lot of seminaries. Well, no, no, it, no. It actually, what it says is uh, anybody ordained after the promulgation of this motu proprio should ask the bishop and the bishop consults. So it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, okay. the bishop has never had to go to Rome to say, you know, Father Smith is yeah, asking to celebrate uh, the Missal according to 1962. Right. So there are some of the, uh, say, the Swiss cheese, the holes in the Swiss cheese. But let's, let's look at the... Uh, the nut holes of this, Chris, <laughs> not the holes, but the cheese itself. Yeah, because there are some places where the Pope talks about in the, in the accompanying letter that he's saddened by the abuses in the sacred liturgy, uh, that he deplores with Pope Benedict the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in the celebration. Um, they become authorization for creativity, which leads to unbearable mm -hmm. distortions. Right. Yeah. And he gives the suggestion you you can celebrate the Roman canon if you want. Right. Eucharistic prayer, what? If you want to choose the traditional options, uh, you can. Yeah, and in fact, towards the end, along that same line, Dennis, and again, these are the things that really, you know, made my ears uh, perk up, is that uh, he asked bishops to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after the Second Vatican Council without eccentricities that easily degenerate into abuses. Right, so... I mean, this isn't a letter simply to those who celebrate or participate in the extraordinary form. Uh, it's a letter to Catholics who celebrate the ordinary form to get back to the books and celebrate them with the heart and mind of the church, 
Right? Because as many have pointed out, I mean, these sort of deformities and abuses and nonsense uh, and constantly changing experiences is what has driven or encouraged people to go to a place where you know what you're going to get from one Sunday to the next. Uh, and so I think, you know, if, if you are uh, a Catholic who's all into the ordinary form and you want to respond to this uh, motu proprio, well, part of your response is making sure your liturgy is celebrated beautifully and authentically. Right. Even some of the extraordinary four masses, you know, that I go to, I hear people say, well, I don't, I'm not really philosophically connected to this. I just want to make sure I go to a place where it'll be respectful, quiet, nice vestments, good servers, decent preaching, and a nice looking church. And we can do that with the ordinary form for sure. So, I mean, we'll talk about this more as the season goes by. But imagine you went to a church where the priest was ce celebrating most of the mass in Latin maybe, except for maybe the readings and the intercessions. Maybe it was ad orientum, position. Maybe it was a beautiful vestment. Maybe there was an awesome smelling incense, great processions with servers and candles vested properly. The uh, propers are sung from the Gradual Romanum in, in Latin. You might not even know, as Pope Benedict said before he's Pope Benedict, you might not even know it's not the extraordinary form. And that, I think, is, is a goal, to say how traditionally can we celebrate the ordinary form and um, how can we make sure that authentic version of Vatican II is, is given to people? And along those lines, Dennis, I highlighted this one. Whoever wishes to celebrate with devotion according to earlier forms of the liturgy can find in the Reformed Roman Missal, according to Vatican II, all the elements of the Roman rite. Now, right. that's super important that's right there. Kind of a mic drop. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, so... Now, there are scholars know. out there who will argue about... Reforms getting rid of orations or adding things that were invented sure. on napkins and you know cafes in mm -hmm. Rome by, by Periti at the council. We're not really going to discuss that stuff. I mean, there are certain scholars <laughs> who are out there. One of them recently was arguing for the, a crowded calendar of saints we never had heard of, like the calendar had before Vatican II. There will be people like that. But for the average person, learn everything you can from the extraordinary form. Celebrate the ordinary form in its traditional options, and I think you'll be able to find a home for a lot of people who love traditional liturgy. Yeah. Well, it, th there's that line at the beginning of, uh, I guess, at the beginning of the germ, where they say, you know, the two missiles, the one from Trent and the one from the Second Vatican Council, even though centuries uh, fall between them, embrace one in the same tradition, one in the same liturgical tradition. And I think... Um, the current books would do a great service to the church and its unity if they were celebrated more in line with the tradition for which it came. Okay, pastors, here's a challenge. Maybe one mass on a Sunday, current books, ordinary form, celebrated in Latin, ad orientum, with the great musical tradition of the Graduella Romanum, beautiful vestments, great servers, and Ethiopian frankincense, which is my favorite incense, and see what happens, right? Maybe the, the Latin Mass crowd will uh, say, wow, I, I think I can come into unity with the church because this is acceptable to me. Maybe not, but we'll see. And the people who are not in the Tratty crowd, and I'm, you know, one of them, will say, wow, I never really, I've never seen this before. It's in English and when I need it to be in English, but I get the, the longevity of the Latin rite and why it uses all this wonderful stuff. And maybe... Maybe all of us can now be the people who bridge that gap and let that mutual enrichment really start to happen. Wow, somebody should start a podcast about all that stuff. I think so. 
Yeah. Well, I think we'll say more about this. What we want to do in this season, you know, we have had seasons where we've talked about the catechism, liturgy and catechism, or sacrosanctum concilium, and other sort of threads that have gone throughout the year. We want to make the thread in this year just what you're saying, Dennis, is how would you take the the Missal of Paul VI and celebrate it in its legitimate and pastoral options along these lines? So I look forward to that. Amen, brother. And this is pretty much what we've been saying our entire lives as liturgy guys. <laughs> now we're getting this impetus from this motu proprio to, to hurry it along, and I think that's a good way to read it. All right, should we answer a dubium, you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> how, have we made it to, how have we made it to season six and not called it that from the yeah. very beginning? Yeah, like, that's that, a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. All right. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? All right, guys, we have a question this week from Kyle. Kyle says, I recently came across a corporal that has a relic sewn into the underside of it. I think that is usually used for traveling mass when an altar stone is too inconvenient to use. How does one go about making one of these, and how can I get a relic made uh relic to make one as a gift for a priest there's a lot of questions in there to which i do not know and we will only answer one you only get one kyle Uh, that's the deal yeah no well we'll say that when when you were throwing around some of these questions before which ones we should answer um i thought this thing was called a a antipendium and dennis said no it's not yes that's that's something else that's well what is it what's an antipendium Independent is the thing that hangs in front of okay. an altar in the okay. old uh, usage. All right. Uh, but I knew it was something like that. And apparently it's called a what? An antimensium? Yes, in Latin or antimension in Greek. Uh, okay. All right. Is that and, kind of like the mensa, like a table? Yes. Well, it's anti is instead of. Antipendium oh. is in front of. This is A-N-T-E. This is A-N-T-I, which is the instead of altar. And it comes from the Greek usage, Greek rites, apparently. Yes. Well, not just the, the, the term, but the actual thing that uh, Kyle is describing, right, is that it's a, yeah, imagine something like a corporal um, that and into the fabric is sewn a relic or maybe more than one relic of a saint. And it and I think it is meant to serve something like an altar stone. Uh, I, I don't know the rules of, say, uh, I don't know which Eastern rite this would be. So I think it's an Eastern rite thing, principally, not a Roman rite or Latin rite. Right, and primarily so, Greek from what, from what okay. I understand. Yeah, so I don't know what the what the norms or rubrics or rules would be that if Mass or Divine Liturgy would have to be celebrated uh, along with or on top of uh, a relic. Um, that's not the case in the, uh, in the Roman rite uh, liturgy. But um, I think that's what it's meant to, I'm, ge- I'm really guessing here, um, is that, uh, yeah, it would, be, it would be used so that the divine liturgy can be celebrated uh, uh, according to the rubrics, uh, which must include, apparently, uh, a relic of a saint. Right. And I had never heard of this before we got the question. Just shows you the depth of the Catholic faith. And there's a nice entry in the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia about it. You can find a newadvent.org. And it said it was uh, required to be placed on the altar in Greek churches, just like before the council, we had to have an altar stone. You couldn't say mass without it. And I guess it was their version of having the relics you know, sort of under the altar. 
and um, was made meant for missionaries and priests who were traveling mostly, where there was no consecrated altar and no bishop. So the, the bishop would actually consecrate the antimensium almost as he would an altar, and then the priest would carry it around and use it to say mass. So other t in the Latin rite, people used to take altar stones, you know, small one-foot square altar stones if they were going to say mass outside or somewhere where there was no church. And I guess it's roughly the Greek uh, equivalent of that. How would you wash something like that? Carefully, I suppose. Un, uh, <laughs> un take out the relic and clean it and put it back. Hmm. Yeah, Very interesting. So, so to the other parts of Kyle's questions, I mean, how would you get a relic? That's, I think, can be pretty difficult. Actually, I don't, I don't know how easy that would be. I know that to find a relic that meets the requirements of a modern altar or mensa, I mean, those are hard to come by. Uh, and should you make one of those now for Roman Rite uh, Mass? I, I don't think so. doesn't appear anywhere in the in the instructions or norms in, in the book. So I don't think the church envisions something like that being used. But right. anyway, it doesn't sound like it was really thoughts. ever part of the Roman Latin Rite tradition. Yeah. All right, Kyle, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Uh, you probably find Dennis and Chris's private info on the white pages if you do like the little subscription thing. You may even find their social security numbers as well, but that's <laughs> up to you. All right. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>